This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Pre-Roma. And I did say at our meeting last time that this commenced a new series, but I've had to repent and change my mind because I've forgotten a holiday was coming in between and it will be wise to let our subject this evening bring this series, present series, to a conclusion. So that when we meet together again, we'll be able to start afresh from another aspect altogether. So those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join with us in the reading of the scriptures, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Hebrews chapter 10. In our last study, we turned aside for a moment to try to get a little idea of what that word holiness meant, you may remember. And in this very chapter we've read, we suddenly come across the fact it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We want to remember that even though we are saved and blessed. But if we were to fall into the hands of the living God without all the wonderful protection that Christ has made for us, it would indeed be a fearful thing. For the same epistle goes on to say later, for our God is a consuming fire. We dare not approach him without this covering. But there's no need to have fear, because that covering has been provided by that very God himself, and is absolutely trustworthy. This evening, we are concentrating our attention on the first few chapters of the book of Leviticus, and then this aspect of our study will be brought to a conclusion. I don't want to overdo any one aspect, and we have been giving the sacrificial side of our Saviour's work uh, quite a hearing in these meetings, and there's no need to apologise for that. But there are other things which are awaiting us, which arise out of that great sacrifice, and so bringing this series to an end this evening, we'll be prepared to pick up another aspect of it entirely when we meet together, God willing, after the little recess is over. Or whatever our attitude to the question of sacrifice may be, it's utterly impossible to study the early books of Moses without realising that that was the very centre of the whole of his ministry. The whole of his ministry revolves round that tabernacle and its sacrifices without which the whole thing was in vain. Although later on we read that sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, it's only because they were types and shadows and Christ himself had come. And when we remember that our Saviour himself said that in the summing up or the volume of the book, in the summary which God has given of the whole of the Bible, it is written of me, a body hast thou prepared me, lo I come, then we realise that it is indeed central to the whole purpose of God. Simply because the whole purpose of God at the present time is redemptive. What he will do afterwards with us, what he will do when sacrifice and priesthood have completely done their work, is beyond our horizon at the moment. Let's be thankful that he has done it, and that we've entered into some of the fruits of it. I wonder if it would be worthwhile just for a moment to think about our English word, sacrifice. The Bible, of course, wasn't written in English, but we use this word sacrifice so much that sometimes it may be worthwhile to say, what do you mean by it? Well, we divide it up into its parts. S-A-C is a part of the word that means sacredness. And so it stands for the word holiness. F-I-C-E is the word that gives us the word F-A-C-T, fact. At the end of words, like an artifice, it means something that you have made. Made. So the word sacrifice means something that makes holiness a reality. It takes that which is sacred and makes it real. That's the reason for sacrifice. We are sinful. And all the talk of holiness, all the lectures we may attend, all the commandments we observe, all the ceremonies we go through will leave us just as blank as ever. But the sacrifice of Christ has made holiness possible. And it is a gift of God could be bestowed by no other. Well now, this uh, opening chapters of the book of Leviticus 
contain a series of different offerings which all converge on the one offering of Christ. How it was possible for Christ to be the Passover lamb to redeem from a spiritual Egypt, to be the whole burnt offering which was a sweet savour, and also the sin offering which was burnt to ashes in a place outside the camp, is almost beyond our understanding. But we do know this, that when he died on that cross, he endured the curse of a broken law, he made reparation for sin, he brought in a means of justification and forgiveness, acceptance and access. So even though we may not be able to analyse it in our minds or on paper, we can sit in glorious contemplation of the fact that it's true and it's been accepted on our behalf. So I want to ask you this evening to devote all the time we have to considering these five offerings that come in these early chapters of the book of Leviticus. You will see I've got rather a crammed chart here and uh, we'll take it piece by piece. And those of you who are listening to the recording of this afterwards, we hope you will be able to get a copy of it so that the references to it won't be too tantalising. First of all, we have in chapter 1 a burnt offering. It says in verse 2, Speak ye unto the children of Israel, say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. And then goes on to say, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, it shall be this. You notice, if the man does it. This isn't the basic sacrifice to redeem you from sin. This is something that you are invited to bring. There's no reference here in this offering to your sinfulness. This is something which is approaching God and recognising that he has a right to your worship. You see, what we want to remember is this. Our first thought of the offering of Christ is always my Saviour, always my Redeemer, always delivered me from this horrible pit. And that's all. No, no, that's not all. If you were a saint, if you were an angel in glory, God still has a right to your worship. He still has a claim on you. What do you say, what about that? You're looking all the negative side. You're saying, all my sins, that could be put away. Put away. So you haven't got any sins. But what have you got positively? What have you done? Oh, you say nothing. Oh, I see. You've forgotten that. So this first offering of Christ is not putting away your sin, but recognising God's claim upon you. Well, that, that'll put you in need of a saviour. The moment you face his claim on you, you can never meet it. So let's come first to this thought. And you will see that it is divided up into three parts. Verses 3 to 9 speak of the bringing, bringing of a bullock. And then verse 10 to 13 is a sheep. And verse 14 to 17 are just doves. Now they're all the same offering but they are presented in a different way. What does this suggest? It suggests this, that every one of us have not got exactly the same conception of the finished work of Christ as everyone else. One person sees it from one point of view, one sees it from another. Well, are we accepted in the Beloved according to the estimate we have of what he's done for us? Because if we are, we'll be putting out down the list if we're the best of us. But don't you see a blessed thought coming out here? After we get the description of the offering in verses 3 to uh, 10, it ends up by saying at verse 13, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And it ends up at verse 9, the same words, an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And it ends up in verse 17, exactly the same words, not an alteration of a syllable, an offering made by fire, a sweet savour unto the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you have a big conception of Christ or a very little one. It's all the same ground of acceptance for the apostle Paul who had a mighty saviour and for me who only see a little bit. We are not accepted because of our grasp. 
or because of our knowledge, or because of our understanding, or because of our appreciation, we're accepted because of Him. Isn't that lovely? But it doesn't mean to say it doesn't matter, because we are losing if we have a very small conception of what He did. But we're not losing in that sense, because three times over, these words are repeated. It's a sweet-smelling savour. You notice I have on this chart the word bull. Our version says bullock. Well, I don't want to go into this too intimately, but you know possibly that a bullock is an animal that's been interfered with by a farmer. And if you only knew it, you'd far quickly run away from a cow in a field than a bullock. For a bullock's just a walking piece of meat. That's all he is. He's got no life or activity much in it. He's simply growing beef. But if you've ever seen a bull, you know the difference. And that's only the difference that's happened because one has been treated by the farmer and the other hasn't. And God would never use an animal that's been doctored up by man. So do remember that it was a bull with all his completeness that is representing here the offering of Christ. Then there are one or two features that I think we do well to remember. In the uh, description of this bull, as you see in verse 3, he puts it most prominently at the beginning, let him be a male without blemish. That's the first thing. Or whether you're coming to the Lord with a conception of Christ as the bull, or the sheep, or even of a turtle dove, there's one thing that must be consistent, without blemish. A spotless offering. However small it may be, that must remain true, without blemish. And then you will see, in connection with the bull, that when this is offered, verse 4 says, he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. And that word to put is translated elsewhere to lean, to realize that you can be supported here. Not merely casually putting your hand on, but resting on it. You see, the one who's got this conception of Christ is leaning, completely resting on that wonderful finished work. He leans with his hand upon his head. And then there's another expression here, which is useful for us to notice in verse 4, and it shall be accepted for him. Accepted for him. Well, then you get um, in the next one, the sheep. That also, verse 10, that also is to be without blemish. But I don't think you read that he puts the hand upon the head. It's brought there. It's slain. It's offered. And the person is standing there who's making the offering and realises that that's for him. He realises that that acceptance is his. But he's not quite so fully resting in it as the man who put his hand upon the head and said, this is mine, I'm identified with this, I lean here. And there, there are differences in Christians, aren't there? There are those whose, you're sure, they are wholly resting in the finished work of Christ. And then there are others who are a little timid of that, and they seek to supplement it a bit, only a wee little bit, by something that they can do themselves. God is very gracious, and he's given here these three offerings. There's the bull, which is the complete one. There's the sheep, which is very near. And then there's another one. This other one is turtle doves, or young pigeons. There's no statement here about laying the hands upon their head. There's nothing here about all the words accepted. But there is, at the finish, the words, an offering made by fire, a sweet savour unto the Lord. The pigeons were the offering of the poor. So a person who is poor in faith, he just realises that Christ died for him and he doesn't know why, and that's good enough. And if you listen to some people, that's where they are. They know that Christ died for them. Blessed be God. But why he did it? 
and all that it's accomplished, they never seem to enter into. Yet, he's their saviour, he undertook for them, and they are accepted. You remember that when our, the day came for our saviour to be taken to the temple, or rather his mother to go to the temple in connection with the offering made at the birth of a child, she took turtle doves. So poor, so poor they couldn't even bring a lamb or a sheep, and certainly not a bull. So it was the poor in faith who were represented by this third one. Now this offering has no reference to the forgiveness of sins or making reparation for anything that's done wrong. It's recognising the claims that God has upon every one of us. We might think of the passage, and I think perhaps we'll turn to it, in Romans, the 12th chapter. The Apostle has gone through this great story in Romans of justification by faith, without works, telling us that the work is by grace, nothing that we can do to add to it or take away from it. It's a completely satisfied thing and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when that's all over, he now says in chapter 12, I beseech you, notice he doesn't say I command you, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Notice the difference. Christ presented his body as a sacrifice that was to die. You're not doing that. Oh no. But you're presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or logical service. It's logical. As an outcome of the fact that Christ has done it for you, and you are now in him accepted, well, he says the logical thing is, you seek now in your small little way to follow in his steps, but with no idea that you're supplementing the work or attempting to buy that which is God's gift. Well, we must pass on. One of these would occupy us, of course, if we went into all the story, but we're just surveying these five offerings. This is followed in chapter 2 by the one which I've got on my chart, the meal offering, but you will see is called a meat offering. If you look at the references elsewhere. Uh, that ought not to be a bother to you. It says in verse 4, if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering. Because meat means something more than flesh. I suppose you have Sometime or your other, have a sweet meat? Yes? And have you never had grace before meat and there's been no meat on the table? Don't you see, it's a wider word than flesh eating. And there's no shedding of blood in chapter 2. This is a present. The minka or a present. Now the first offering, the burnt offering, was a recognition of all the claims of God met. Perfect. Nobody could find anything against this just man. Neither Pilate, nor Herod, nor the centurion, anybody. There he was. Every claim recognised. Now this one is looking at him himself. Inherent holiness. And the way it's set forth is by the materials that are used. And the very first one is fine flour. Verse 1. His offering shall be a fine flower. It's, it's repeated, fine flower, further down in verse 5. Emphasis upon the fine. Fine flower. And you may wonder why I've got there uh, against this the word Moses and Paul. You see, fine flower was perfectly even, perfectly smooth. No irregularities. Now look at a man like Moses. What that man endured is beyond our understanding. To think that he lost his temper once is almost miraculous. That he lasted so long. But even Moses, that man of God, with whom God spoke face to face, like a man talking to his friend, even Moses, 
At last they ye rebels and struck the rock and failed to glorify God in that particular. And so high was he in responsibility that God said to Moses, for that you should not enter the land. Wasn't that awful? Do you mean to tell me you can trifle with God? Look at Moses. So Moses, you see, in spite of the fact that he was a wonderful picture of Christ, but he said, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you like unto me. He was like unto him in many ways, but he never lost his temper, not our saviour. He never broke down once, did he? Or take the Apostle Paul. How closely he followed his saviour, didn't he? Did our saviour ever get somebody and say three times over, if it be possible? Here's the Apostle Paul saying, and for this I besought three times. Was our saviour for Satan? The Apostle Paul says, all in nature have left me, they forsaken me. Always followed his master very closely. But I do remember on one occasion, when he was taken up before the high priest, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, he suddenly turned round and said, Dost thou smite me now, whited wall? Can't you hear him? And immediately he, he, he repented and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I ought not have said that about God's high priest. See? So the best of us, the best of us, are never the fine flower that was represented in that offering. No. Here is something which belongs to him, inherent. This is what our Lord, this is what the Father in heaven saw when he commenced his public ministry. Thirty years of obscure life, lived in that presence. And this is how he describes him, fine flower, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Then we have oil, which you will find by referring to a number of passages represents that which is sacred. In Genesis 28, 17 onwards, you have Jacob, after his experience at Bethel. Oh, how terrible is this place, he said. This is the very gate of God. And he anointed that stone with oil. It was sacred. Or you get it in other places. We've got it in chapter 8 of this Leviticus, which we can look at without too much time. Leviticus 8, verse 10. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. The whole tabernacle was touched with the anointing oil. So that you see, it's a symbol of that which is sacred. When we read of our Saviour in the epistle to the Hebrews, we read that he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Here he is. This is the one in whom there was no spot or wrinkle or blemish. Neither God nor man could find fault with him. And then frankincense. Frankincense. We heard about the frankincense when we were dealing with the tabernacle. That fragrance that was a big component part of the incense offered to God. And the word itself meaning something white. Here we have perfect acceptance in the presence of God. And then you will notice two things. We are told in the um, verse 11, No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. Well, we can understand that, can't we? Because leaven has already been repudiated at the Passover and is never included in an offering made by fire unto the Lord that represents the offering of Christ. Leaven is a very useful thing in ordinary everyday life. The enzymes of which leaven is one are actively engaged day and night in connection with the bodily functions without which we should not live. But it was taken as a symbol because of what it seems to do. It has a corrupting influence. If you don't know what I mean, well, either try to make bread or see somebody else who is so busy 
that they forget. Leaven doesn't forget. And if he let it go too long, it's just corrupt. You could do nothing with it. Like the kingdom of heaven will become so terrible in its aspect at the time of the end, it will be like unto a woman which hid leaven in three measures of meal to the whole was leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of it. Put out the leaven of malice and wickedness. You see, all the way through. So in him, no leaven. But now the next thing seems rather strange, doesn't it? Nor any honey. Oh, now honey's sweet, isn't it? Oh, you might have thought, oh, well, yes, we can, <coughs> we can have honey in the offering of Christ. And that's where we get taken in. Or there's many a person. That's his nature. Sweet nature. Happy-go-lucky sort of person. And we mistake that for spirituality. Neither of these things are allowed. No, no. Neither the leaven nor the honey in this offering. If there was sweetness in Christ, it was the sweetness of acceptance in the Father's presence. So, I think we can interpret these things for ourselves a little bit. And perhaps the next time you meet that very charming person, you know, very affable person, you may say to yourself, hmm, no leaven, no honey. Or you'll be wondering what you're saying, but it may do you good sometimes. Because we are many times taken in by the glib tongue and the quotation of scripture and the very affable way in which some people beat you. And you can look at some other poor old saint who's all gnarled and twisted up by arthritis or whatever it might be, or got a gruff sort of voice or a peculiar attitude, and you give him scant rule. And yet he may be the real thing. It doesn't mean to say we've got to have gruff voices and we've got to be gnarled and twisted, but at the same time, those things are externals. They're not the reality. So we have this one. This is now two offerings we've come across which have no reference to our need of redemption, to our need of forgiveness. It's putting us in our place, friends. It's saying, although you're in a desperate fix and you need a saviour, don't forget that the, the work of Christ was doing a bit more than looking after you. It was taking the other side that you could never do. It was for you if you only knew it. And making that perfect offering to the Father, without which the other offering would have been invalid. Unless he, unless he was perfect and accepted in himself, how could he bear the sins of others? You see, the high priest in the Old Testament was a failure. He was only a type. For before he could atone for the sins of the nation, what do you know what he had to do? He had atone for himself. Well, that put him out of court then, really, because if he had to atone for himself to make himself right, to atone for others, it only shows that it was type and shadow and not reality. Now the epistle of Hebrew says, he had no need to offer for others. It was all an offering on our account. Well now, instead of going right through this list, I want to change the order for a moment. In the middle comes a peace offering. Well, that's the right place for it, isn't it? When that side is settled and that side is settled, but supposing you know what that side has done, chapters 1 and 2, and you haven't quite got what these other chapters say at the other end, and we go into the middle one, you won't get it right, will you? So we'll leave the middle one for a moment, and we'll go to the other two. Now these, immediately you come to these other two, oh, they deal with sin. Oh yes, if you've been waiting for where your sin comes in and is dealt with, here you'll find it. So we have in chapter 4, the sin offering, and in chapter 5, the trespass offering. Now, I'm going to chapter 5 first, because that's where we first approach God. I say we. Normally, the ordinary, everyday, ordinary person doesn't seem, first of all, to be convinced of inherent sinfulness. What he's worried about is some things that he's done but there's a difference between trespass, which is something you've done, and the consciousness that in God's presence, whether you've done anything or not, you're very, very far from perfect. Whatever you've done, or whatever you've left undone. So, you find a balance. There we have the offering 
which satisfies all the claims of God and man upon Christ. And here in the trespass offering, you have the claims of God and men never been met, but they've got to be adjusted. So in this one, we have a whole series of ways in which trespass can be brought about. But one of the things I think that we can notice in chapter 5, 15 and 16 is this peculiar character. If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance, you notice that? Because there's a possibility that some folks may be sitting at a meeting like this and say, hmm, I've never done that. I've never done anything like that. But this says you can be you can be needing a trespass offering because you've done something through ignorance. You see, unless you've got complete, absolutely complete knowledge of the will of God for you. Well, you can realise that every day there are things that you ought to have done that you've never done. Why, that puts us in our place, doesn't it? Whoever, what among us can boast in the presence of God if this is the standard? So it says, if a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks. But that's not all. This offering is peculiar in that it not only has a, an offering of this sacrifice, but with thy estimation by shekels of silver, when it says with thine estimation in the Old Testament, it means that the judges have assessed and they find you so much. They find you. So with this offering, there's a fine attached to it. Verse 16. And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto. Don't you see how this, how right this is? If you and I, we've robbed and done harm to our fellow men. Now all we've got to do is to go to God and say, are we forgiven? Well, what about our fellow man? He says, that's a fine idea. You're cheating me out of a hundred pounds and you just go and say, and you're forgiven? And I'm left like this. Well, that may be so in some of our law courts, but it wasn't in the court of God. That man who sought forgiveness for what harm he'd done to his fellow man put his hand into his pocket as well and paid a fine and made amends. Now, you know that the word to make amends is one of the words that translate the basic word for peace in Scripture. Peace isn't quietness. Peace is satisfying all claims so that there's no more, no more need to placate, no more need to worry. That's peace. And yes, he make amends. And then you remember there's another Scripture. I think it is, just I'll just refresh my memory, I think I'll quote it. In the Psalms, it's one of those prophetic Psalms, Psalm 69. But by the time you find it, perhaps I should have turned away again. He says in verse 4, They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. They that would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restore that which I took not away. That's our Saviour. He was restoring when he died for me something which I had involved in him. He restored that which he took not away. That's trespass offering. Now this is dealing with sins with an S on the end of it. Now if you know your epistle to the Romans in its general disposition of subject matter, you know that chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 and a part of 5 deal with sins with an S on the end. And faith is dominant there. But the moment you come into chapter 5, verse 12, right through to the end of the 8th chapter, sins are gone. It's not what you've done now, it's what you are. Takes you back to Adam. Shows you the whole human race as one company, whether you're an infant, or whether you're an old person or whatnot, you all belong to the same group, and you're in that predicament. And faith is not mentioned except once in Romans 5 to 8. But it's now a knowledge of something which has been brought to bear upon you. 
And in the early, in the inner part of Romans, there is this emphasis upon sin, as distinct from sins. And it's all incipient here for the God who arranged all this. They, uh, uh, he also, of course, understood that. Again, in chapter 6, you get this same stress upon restoration, verse 5. Or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add a fifth part thereto. Why a fifth part? Now, the moment I embark on figures, I have to be like um, Agag and walk delicately. But I do think, somehow, that I'm right when I say one-fifth is two-tenths. Any objection? Oh, all good. Two-tenths. Now, a tenth is a tithe, isn't it? A tithe is what I owe to God. But I've got to pay two of them here. I owe that to God. But he doesn't let me get off. I owe that to my fellow man. You see? That's trespass. So that it's an immoral thing for people to think that because you're forgiven your sin, you have been spared all obligation to put the matter right. Oh no. You can't make your, you can't get your forgiveness whatever you do. But to think that you can get scot free simply by acknowledging before God and let the other man pay, that's not Christianity. Your conscience should make you feel, oh, I have been forgiven. It's all settled. I can't let it slide. I must go and make some amends if I can. That is right. Well, now we come from this one to the sin offering. As I put there against that, the sin offering, sinfulness, or what I am, whereas the trespass offering is what I do. Chapter 4, verse 3. Oh, we'll read verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if, the, now he starts particularizing, he leaves the general children of Israel and says, Now, if the priest that is anointed do sin, now, our version says, according to the sin of the people. The revised version reads, so as to bring guilt upon the people. Oh, what a responsibility to be a priest before God. For if the priest goes wrong, he involves the people who trust him. Aren't you glad you haven't got any priests now? I was very moved once, many years ago in Whitechapel, going upstairs into a back room, taken in by a friend, and there was a group of Jewish children. Every one of them Jewish children. And you know what they were singing? I have no priest but Jesus. I want no priest beside. Oh, they got a hymn there. This perfect offering. This perfect priest. But here you see you've got men. Men who were sinful like the rest of their fellows. Men who never retained their office very long because they died. So sometimes in the office of a priest they could involve their followers in sin. It says so. Well then he has to bring this offering and he goes right through with it. And you discover that, it, that as I say, verses 6 and 7, this priest who's thus become involved in sin is involving access into the presence of God. That's why I say it's serious. If the priest goes wrong, well the whole thing goes wrong. So if we have a priest, Paul never says in his epistles to us that we've got a priest, but we've got Christ who is the priest, and the headship of Christ includes all that a priest can do, so we haven't lost anything. But we have no fears with regard to him, have we? He will never do by ignorance anything that will involve us. But these types and shadows, like the offerings they made, it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats or the ministry of poor men like the Levites or the sons of Aaron could ever take away sin or bring about acceptance. 
So they had to, he had to sprinkle blood seven times before the veil of the sanctuary, verse 6. Why? Because his sin had involved the idea of complete acceptance and access. So he had to acknowledge that. And then you will find that this offering, when it is made, verse 12, he shall take the whole bullock without the camp into a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire. And this sin offering is never called a sweet savour. This is where the curse came down. This is where we read in the epistle of the Hebrews, let us go out without the camp unto him. That's where they put him. Our Saviour was offered without the camp, the sin offering, burned to ashes outside, not on the altar, making a fragrance, but outside showing that the wages of sin is death. Where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire. Just one word with regard to this word I've got here in chapter 5, verse 1. If a soul sin and hear the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he hath seen or known it, if he do not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. I'd like you to realise one of the peculiarities of the Hebrew language. The word bear in one form of the verb, means to carry, like to bear sin. But in another form of the same verb, it means to forgive sin. Now you may say to me, well, I can't quite see that. So supposing I'll give you another illustration. One form of the Hebrew word means to lend money. And another form of the very self-same word means to borrow it. Now, you needn't get tangled up, friends. You'll, no, 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 you'll be on the right side, or wrong side, whichever it may be. But don't you see how true that is? Look, could you lend money to anybody if nobody would borrow from you? Don't you see, every action demands someone on the other side. Can you sell anything if nobody will buy from you? Can you? You might give it away, but you can't sell if they won't buy so what I'm trying to show you is this, that so incipient is the idea that forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, demands a sacrifice where sin has been born, that it's the same word turned over. That sin which is born by a sacrifice is that sin which is forgiven. And you can quite see that any idea of being forgiven by God patting you on the head and saying, I'll let you off this time, is utterly impossible. Now, an illustration of this is waiting for us in Genesis 4, in case anybody hasn't met it. Genesis 4.13 is the cry of Cain. Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. But then the margin says, My iniquity is greater than it may be forgiven. Because those who translated those words knew that the word punishment was the other side of the word iniquity. Don't you see in the estimate of God you cannot have iniquity without punishment being the other side of the same story. Oh yes, the wages of sin is death everywhere. And when he said my punishment is greater than I could bear he used the word which in another form would be forgiven. So he might have said my punishment is greater than I can bear. Or he might have said, is my iniquity greater than can be forgiven? And possibly, when he said the words, they involved both thoughts. That the thought was, have I sinned so far that I'm beyond the reach of punishment? Is there no offering ever can be for me? Because he'd seen what Abel had done, and we need it, we've got no answer. All I'm dealing with at the moment is the meaning of words. And it's good for us to realise the way in which the Hebrew language presents this twofold meaning very many times in one word. As I've got there, the bear, the word to forgive, and uh, the word to lift up. To lift up. 
if the, if the primary meaning of the word to bear sin means to lift it up, then you can understand that you can use the word lift up to take the burden off again by forgiving. It's not possible to go much further with it because of the ramifications of language, but I thought you ought to know that as I've got a note there for it. Well now, because of our time, let's come to the central one. This is in chapter 3. This is the focus. It's all bearing on this. If we haven't got this, it's a gigantic work done for what? What? Why, the work of Christ from beginning to end is the work of a mediator. Job's cry, all that there were a day's man between us to lay his hand upon us both. Here it is. That side, this side. Both. God's side, man's side. God's demands, the burnt offering, man's demands, the trespass offering. Who is there that can combine all those in one? Or none of us could do one of them. But Christ did the five. And so in the middle, we've got the peace offering. Now one of the characteristics of this peace offering, as I've got there the word shalom, the word to make amends, is the word peace. This is no patched up peace. It's been settled. The transaction's over. The debt's cancelled. It's all complete. And I've also given you a notice there in chapter 3, verse 11, God partakes of this sacrifice. In chapter 8, 31, the same, the same peace offering, the priest partakes of it. And in chapter 7, verse 15, the man who offered it partakes of it. And that's the only offering in the whole of the Mosaic system where God and the priest and the offerer all partake together. That's the fellowship. That's the communion. That's the oneness that's been brought about. That is the manifestation of reconciliation. I've just got a note there with regard to the Greek word, peace, Irene. Irene. The construction of that word is made up of words which means to connect into one. And when the Apostle used it in Ephesians 2, he said he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, so making peace. Connecting into one. The conflicting parties which were apart are now brought together. And what God did then, he has done here. And we are to endeavour to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Peace. That which connects into one. So it's good to know the meaning of the words sometimes that we use and speak. Now in this particular offering, you'll notice there's a strange um, departure from the usual. In chapter 8, verse 13, where this peace offering is again in view, we read these words. Uh, wait a minute. Seven. I'm sorry, 7.13. Beside the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. That's a strange thing, isn't it? Leaven is so repudiated that this man suddenly got to bring it. Why? Well, that's what I ask myself, why? And I've put there, sin in us must be recognised. You see, with all the rejoicing that we have that we're accepted in the Beloved, and we're one day going to be presented without spot or wrinkle and any such thing. Don't get any delusions, friends. You're not perfect yet. Because you may say, well, we don't need to be reminded of that by you. No, I know. But you see, even when you've got to this centre of the whole thing, when the reconciliation is there and you're at peace with God, the man brings an offering which says, but in myself, that's where I am still. We shall never be shot of the old man until we get to glory. You know the little story that we've heard before of the man who went into the presence of Spurgeon and said that he hadn't committed sin for so many years, seven years, I think. And then Spurgeon is supposed to pick up a little drop of water that was left in the glass and he went like that. And the man said certain things. He said, ah, he said, I thought so. The old man wasn't dead, he'd only fainted. Oh yes, 
Most of us will find that out sometime or another. Well, there it is. Sin recognized. But, does that mean to say then, oh, well, of course, we must keep on excusing ourselves and say, oh, well, none of us are perfect, you know, and hide behind it? Well, look at the other reference, chapter 720. But the soul that eateth of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertain unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, even that soul should be cut off from his people. I think we distinguish between sin in us that we can't avoid and we can't deny and sin on us that we ought to have got rid of and see to it that they've been put away before we enter into negotiation with the service of God. Two aspects. We haven't got to be plunged into despair because we are conscious that there is still in our members this warfare going on. The Apostle knew that. But at the same time, he ever sought to walk in harmony and as he put it to the Corinthians, perfecting holiness in the fear of God by repudiating fellowship with that which was unclean or evil in his daily walk. Well, that's been rather a rapid survey begun to take him possibly and I fear I've fallen down over it a good bit. But I've tried to sketch out a few of the outstanding features buried in these chapters. Now they want to be taken patiently through, weighing over each detail, and I hope you'll do it before we meet together another time. But surely, if that has been written by our Lord in the forefront of this Levitical law, doesn't it show what God was planning for us? Before Christ came, all those hundreds of years beforehand, he got all these various types and shadows picturing him. And then we'll go to Hebrews 10, and we read once more the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, deliver you, or make you accepted completely. For then will they not have ceased to be offered, but they're repeated every year. And then, tracing the fact that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Then our Saviour steps in. Then said I, Lo, I come. A body has now prepared me. And we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't there a hymn that says, once for all? Oh yes, let's, let's rejoice in it. Never to be repeated. Never again to be subjected to it. Never again needed. What a saviour. What a sacrifice. And what a blessed thing that we have a picture of it in type and shadow to remind us of some of the blessed features which are brought out more in doctrinal detail in Paul's great epistles in the New Testament.